Hi everyone, welcome to The Green Room, where we speak to entrepreneurs and thought leaders in fintech across Southeast Asia. I'm your host, Amrita Veer. We are sponsored by the ASEAN Financial Innovation Network, or AFIN, Oxygen by Apex, and open banking fintech, Broncos. In this episode, we hear from RV Devera, SVP and fintech business group head of Union Bank, and Todd Schweitzer, CEO and founder of Broncos, about open banking in Southeast Asia, particularly the Philippines. Arby and Todd talk about key inflection points in their careers that have led them to their current work in fintech, opportunities for banks and fintechs to collaborate, and how COVID-19 has accelerated digital adoption in the region. The Union Bank Fintech Group is part of Philippines-based Union Bank and seeks to co-create financial solutions with emerging financial technology. You can learn more about them by visiting unionbankph.com. Broncos is an open banking fintech that provides API solutions to financial institutions and fosters connectivity among financial service providers. Broncos currently operates in the Philippines, Indonesia, and Thailand. You can learn more about them by visiting brank.as. And now a word from our sponsors. My name is Manish Devan. I am the Managing Director for AFIN, which is ASEAN Financial Innovation Network. We run the very popular apixplatform.com, which is a collaboration platform to help financial institutions work together with a very vibrant ecosystem of fintechs from across the world. We now operate what we call as Oxygen by Apex, which is essentially a knowledge sharing platform and we are very happy to collaborate with the green room it's a great combination of what we do as a platform service provider and what the green room brings to you as a, a knowledge sharing base you can find out more about apex on apexplatform.com and you can find out more about oxygen by logging into apexoxygen.com where you'll find a lot of great panels keynotes uh, master classes that we do from time to time and uh, look forward to seeing you there. First, let's get to know our guests. So let's start with Todd. Todd Schweitzer, you are the founder and CEO of Broncos. Uh, we've actually known each other for a long time. Um, we met uh, as consultants like eight years ago. Um, you had just finished your master's from the Harvey Kennedy School. Uh, before that, you had been doing service work with the U.S. Peace Corps in the Dominican Republic, if I'm my memory serves. So catch me up. What have you been doing since I saw you as a hotshot consultant in, uh, in New York City all those years ago? So Bronca started, we started about almost four years ago now. Uh, and, you know, my journey, I, I've always been involved with... Um, economic development challenges in emerging markets. Uh, so I, yeah, I started out in the Peace Corps. The Peace Corps is basically, a, it's part of the US government, but it's, it, it basically acts as a development agency. Um, and Dominican Republic, I was working as a, as a, I was partnered with actually a national park as they were setting up their, basically their commercial operations, right? So going from what was basically a lot of uh, poaching and 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 kind of mismanagement of the land and illegal logging and things like that to actually putting together a formal 
Ministry of Environment uh, trained um, uh, tour program, right? And that, that also involved the community um, so that the community would act as protectors of the land as well. Um, but the main, my main takeaway, the, and the reason I, I, I spend just a minute on that is because as an American growing up in California, I think what I realized is just, there's a term in Dominican Spanish that's called chiripeo. And chiripeo is basically odd jobs. And there's such a large part of the population that doesn't have financial stability because they're going from small job to small job. So it's avocado season. So they're harvesting avocado for three weeks. Then they're working in construction for a month. And then they're working on, uh, then they're working surge during a factory, you know, when, when, the, when the factory needs extra supply. And without having stable income and without being able to build a financial profile, their only option when sickness hits, when there's problems and you know, financial difficulties is going through informal channels where the interest rates are 20, 25% a month, right? Um, and so even, even back in Peace Corps, I realized that like access to financial services is, is um, for those that don't have what is considered a bankable history um, can be really painful. And, and, and so that's always been in my mind I was a consultant for a while after, after grad school. That's where Amrita and I got to meet each other. That was very not emerging market. We did a little bit in Latin America, but it was a lot of big corporate kind of transformation stuff. Typical management consulting, which is great for skill building, um, but it feels a bit removed from, from, from the real world uh, sometimes. Uh, and uh, after three years of that, I transferred within the same firm, Booz & Company, I transferred to the Malaysia office that's where I was doing a lot more uh, back to doing a lot more economic development uh, work um, through public private kind of projects, as well as some, some kind of core economic development work, which is great. Uh, from there, I was, I was kind of eager to get even more into an operations type role. I worked for an investment fund that was part looking at deals and part looking at tech startups around Southeast Asia. Uh, and when I was there, it was a year of kind of looking at technology deals around the region and starting to generate my own list of big problems to be solved. And I came back to this idea of financial access. And what I was seeing was there are so many, so many, especially in consumer banking in Southeast Asia, there's a huge part of the population that many banks just consider not worth it, right? And this is why in the Philippines, there's 70% unbanked population. And in Indonesia, it's somewhere around 60%. And basically these are the large incumbent institutions saying not worth it. They're too expensive. They're too fussy as a customer group. Why don't we just focus on our bread and butter corporate banking, right? And so that it was from that sort of observation that we, that I, we identified that there's, by building API technology to support banks and online merchants, um, what it can actually do is change the economics to make it worth it to bank, uh, to bank consumers. Uh, and SMEs in a way that it wouldn't be when you have to set up the branch infrastructure and the you know all the the kind of the brick and mortar very expensive opex in order to serve those customers, um, which is which is part of the why we're you know we're working with Union Bank uh, is because I think Union Bank realizes that digital first is not only great for kind of helping for growth but it also helps with distribution commercialization and attracting new customers and I think. Um, so maybe we'll talk about that a little bit later, but I think, uh, yeah, that's a bit of a bit of background from my side. 
Thank you very much, Todd. And you talked a little bit about what Broncos does. Uh, do you want to expand a little bit before we go to RV? Sure. So very briefly, Broncos is, you know, we like to think we're solving the last mile for open banking. Uh, and the last mile for, so, you know, open banking, uh, generally speaking, is basically enabling customers to access and interact with their bank accounts through third-party channels if they choose, if, if, if they want that connection. So whether that's linking my union bank to my Gcash e-wallet or um, allowing for kind of an aggregated view so I can see my account activity across banks, um, that's what open banking enables. In emerging markets, and RV and I have talked a bunch about this, uh, is, is, is providing simply a set of bank APIs is basically not good enough in, in many emerging markets because uh, there is not, there's, whether you're a corporate client of the bank or whether you're a fintech starting out or an e-commerce site, you might not have the developers on hand or the kind of technical capability to just read through Union Bank's developer portal and plug in the APIs directly, right? Often what you need is a little bit more handholding. You need, you need connectors and dashboards and other front-end tools that make it much, much easier for you to access bank APIs. And so that's what Broncos does. On the one side, we work with banks like Union Bank to enable them to, to commercialize and distribute their APIs. And on the other side, we work on the user side to make sure it's as easy to plug in and access uh, bank API products as possible. Great. Thank you so much, Todd, for, for sharing all of that. I do want to turn, turn it over to RV. Um, because your, your background and your role at Union Bank is quite different. Um, while Todd was bouncing around all over the world, I believe you have spent the last 10 years at Union Bank. So I'm curious to know how you found your way to Union Bank, uh, you know, 10 years ago, and then how both you and Union Bank have evolved uh, over the last 10 years, especially as you've seen this explosion in fintech all over Southeast Asia. Okay, uh, thank you for that, Marita. And uh, well, to be totally honest, uh, I didn't want to go back to banking 10 years ago. I had started my career in a bank. Um, I, I had started in Citibank. I had spent uh, quite some time there. And at the end of uh, mid-2005, I, I wanted to shift out. I wanted to do something a little more innovative. I felt that banking wasn't innovative. And if you think about it, in 2000, 1999, there's nothing innovative about banking then. And FinTech was not even a, a thought, right? So I found it very, very, you know, very structured. And I thought I wanted to be more innovation. So telco and media, were my next immediate uh, uh, roles. Uh, so I got to work with a telco that has a, uh, an Asia Pacific reach. Um, I got to work with a media company as well that was exploring new technology. So that really was the foundation of, of what I, I, I brought to Union. And, and coming to that point, 10 years ago, the spiel was uh, we were gonna transform banking. So I didn't, want to go, I didn't want to go back to traditional banking, but we're really, what was really encouraging with us, I was joining a bank that was about to embark on this digital transformation and strategy. And we did. We started it 10 years ago. And one of the first learnings I got 10 years after is that apparently digital is the last piece of it. First of all, it's a cultural transformation. You have to really change the mindset, change the behavior, change the thinking. And so it's been a very, it's been a very fruitful process, but we're you know, painful as well. Um, but we're by no means done. Um, sadly, most people think uh, transformation is a, a destination, but you know it's really a continuous, ongoing journey. Um, and now the transformation has to pivot, accelerate the pivot, um, 
somewhat. But it's been a very interesting journey where we've taken the bank from just uh, really a, a traditional bank to now more a technology company layered with banking services. And that's where, that's where we, we, we want to take it moving forward. I think we were talking about the philosophy of open banking even before open banking became a buzzword. We felt that as banks, we were just the trusted custodian of your money of your identity and in a future where everything is now interconnected and interoperable we think we we still have a very vital role to play in that new world where we will still be the trusted uh, curator of fintechs of partners of services and we will be a platform where we can handle both identity data and your money as well so it's that open banking philosophy which we carry forward also being the, a mid-sized bank, we saw very early on that you know, this transformation was not about doing everything yourself. I think we came to terms with that very early on, that this is about collaborating with as many partners as possible because you know, our country itself is such a, this, such a complicated archipelago that no one institution alone can do it. Um, if that were so, then you know, we wouldn't have 70% unbanked, but that's very clear now. And not one institution, and do it maybe combined we all have a chance of cracking this nut so very early on our our philosophy was really about building technology capabilities some ourselves but some definitely extending it through partners to be able to reach more and so that's what we're doing now and that's what brings us to this context where we're now a bank that's really trying to be a platform to allow our customers access to all these different services financial or otherwise because banking is a a horizontal that cuts across many different industries really rather than a, than a than a vertical so that's what we try to enable so that we can continue to keep giving our customers access to different platforms different services be it a, be it a, cost, a corporate customer or a retail customer ideally he's going to want to obviously keep his money with a trusted institution but also give that money interoperable access together with his data and so we're building platforms along that philosophy and connectivity. Got it. Thank you, Arvi. I, I also wanted to ask the FinTech Business Group, which you lead, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about the work that you do, the types of APIs that you onboard. And then also, uh, I believe that Union Bank is structured a little bit differently compared to a lot of other banks in Southeast Asia. So if you could tell us a little bit about how the FinTech Business Group fits into the broader organization. Okay. Yes, thanks for, thanks for reminding me about that. So three years ago, when we formally established the FinTech Business Group, uh, the mandate was really to work with FinTechs. We, we felt that we wanted to have, in much, in much the same way where you have a traditional bank, uh, have segments catering to large corporates, SMEs, uh, entrepreneurs, startups, we felt that the FinTechs required a specific uh, center of, of focus and excellence as well. So with that, uh, our mandate is to work with any and all fintechs and startups uh, at the very, you know, our strategy is a bit of a pyramid. At the very base layer, every fintech needs a bank. Fintech startup, if you are in operation, you will need a bank. Um, as I said, it's a horizontal. You're going to need it for your basic services. So we wanted to first and foremost be the basic bank of choice for any and all fintechs there. We wanted to be the bank that spoke their language. And therefore, if you're going to open a new account and you're a fintech, We'd like you to do it digitally. We don't want you to sign papers. You know, the new way of working. And at that very base layer, the banking, the fintechs, and the startups, we found quite a bit of success because there are many startups, fintechs, um, 
e-commerce platforms that do want to speak to bankers who speak their language, right? Uh, these guys are opening accounts and nothing in their legacy, nothing in their process speaks legacy and say, oh yeah, I want to write a thousand checks to suppliers. No, I want to make a thousand API calls to direct effect payments to them, right? That's, so it's a new process altogether. So we found ourselves in a way niche in that space where we were catering to them. But other than banking them, there are certain fintechs that we want to work a little bit more deeply with. I guess there are synergies that can be derived, such as what we're doing with Brancas, where we can help each other and we can achieve both our goals. And we're also actually progressing towards the same objective, right? Which is to tech up businesses to, to enable them with APIs. And so there are fintechs that we work closely with. And those synergies uh, might result in a new product, a new service altogether. And when that uh, matures, uh, the last two parts of our pyramid would be to probably possibly invest in those fintechs. If they're of such strategic value and we are deriving a synergy, we might look to invest in them. But the more challenging part, Amrita, comes after investing them in, is to reintegrate this capability back into the bank. So if we are able to, to capture this, this uh, synergy, basically scale it, we have to make sure that it becomes a basic feature of the main bank as well. So the FinTech's group mandate is eventually to also transform the way the main bank works. So that's in a nutshell what we do and how we cover it. And I have to, I have to emphasize how different what RV is describing is how different that is from other bank partners or your kind of your typical bank in Southeast Asia, where if I, not even a FinTech, if I am an, if I'm a digital company needing banking services, as RV described, and I don't want to write a thousand checks or do some batch transfer in order to process payables. And I want it an integrated API that's plugged into my application so that I can, you know, automate, automate paying sellers. That just to find out if that product exists would be, you know, maybe I have a relationship manager, they're running around the bank, they're seeing if this is available. Maybe they're doing something custom, which is going to be on a six month roadmap. If I'm big enough, if I'm not big enough, then they're saying, well, you're an online business. So maybe that's additional risk. So maybe we're not too keen on it. And by the way, like mainly we're serving large corporates and large corporates want a human interaction and they visit branches. So like, why are we bothering with you? You're like a lot of fuss, right? And so to have a dedicated team up to the sea level that is focused on banking products and services to support online businesses is like, I, I, I imagine the cultural change in order to get to that point was quite heavy. And, and it's really, it's one of the, the only uh, organizations I've seen in, you know, FIs in the region that I've seen that have that structure. Even if there's a digital team, you know, every bank will have some digital team, but what that digital team is actually able to execute on and make tough decisions, right, uh, is, is, is uh, um, yeah, it's not too common, not too common. If I can just add to that, uh, the, the, I guess if you ask us why above the culture um, is, is purpose, right? So very early on, even before all this technology, um, we called out our purpose. And, and you know that very well. Tito calls it Ubuntu, which is an African Zulu word for you know, community. So we've always held that we're about, banking is about enabling communities. And, you, and, you know, and, and that's circa 1999. 2005, 2010, 2020, that still holds true today. I mean, the platforms of today are still enabling communities, right? So the, that purpose has held us through 
thick and thin, especially when it gets difficult. And it will get difficult. And you ask, why am I doing this? What for? And many do give way and give up because 74% of transformations do fail, which is why I'm also quick to say we're not by all means in the clear and done, right? But I caution that when it gets tough and you question why, you better have anchored yourself on a purpose that keeps your culture sane so that you can actually follow through with the rest of it. Guys, thank you both for sharing your backgrounds and kind of your motivations for being in this space. I think it's probably a good time to turn our attention over to open banking. Open banking in the US is mainly market driven. In UK, it is mainly led by regulation, GDPR and PS2D, D2. What model will the Philippines take as open banking frameworks proliferate globally? Yeah, well, I'll start with just a quick comment, which is, so I, I, RV's probably talked, you know, we're in touch with the, the Banco Central, the, the, the Philippine Central Bank. Uh, I think they are thinking through what the open banking policy framework will look like. Indonesia is doing the same thing. They just released their very first draft policy paper like three or four weeks ago and circulated it for comments. Um, it is, I am not expecting a top-down mandate for open banking, anything resembling Europe anytime soon. Uh, and there, there are several reasons for that, uh, um, which is another discussion in itself. But I think the, the, I think the message for open banking in emerging markets generally, and in the Philippines specifically, is this: is, we're in like version 0.1, right? Um, and and version 0.1 is enabling uh, customers to do very basic activities. Uh, uh, banking activities through through using API technology, right? And the very basic activities are things like identity and authentication, being able to validate that, yes, I am a customer of this bank, this bank has already done KYC for me, and then this KYC can actually serve as authenticating elsewhere, right? So I can, I can transport my identity verification elsewhere. Number two is payments, and payments is that, you know, Union Bank was, I think, the first bank to provide e-wallet integration. So if I want to top up my e-wallet, I've already linked my union bank account. And it's a, that is a true open banking use case, right? Where I just, I've linked my union bank account to my e-wallet. And whenever I want to pull funds in or transfer money out, I've already authenticated my, my, my device to the, to the account. And all I have to do is approve the transfer. Um, so two, one is identity, two is payments, and three is statement data. So the Philippines, you know, like many markets, does not have a reliable credit bureau. And so any lender... Uh, that wanting to evaluate my creditworthiness will need to see my, my my bank statements. That is the primary source of 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 kind of credit scoring data. Um, and and so what we're seeing, like what does open banking look like in a market like the Philippines? We're seeing the super basic version one use cases around payments, uh, statements, and 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 authentication. And RV, maybe you have you you've seen something else. No, I fully agree with, with, your, with your point. And I'm going to zero in on your, you're not probably going to see a top-down um, uh, mandate like, like you see in other areas. It, it's, I'll, I'll speak to that because the regulator here uh, is very supportive of, of, of the different, I guess, tactical executions of open banking. You can see what we've done in NRPS, PesoNet. You know, those are all mechanisms that really enable open banking. But Todd, they're also very new. Right. I mean, you know, I'm very proud of what we've done in Pesan at Instapay, but, you know, that's only about two years old. I mean, it's, it's 2020, 2018, you know, you couldn't transfer to other banks until then. It was checks. 
checks. <laughs> <laughs> it was checks, right? Or you send and, a runner uh, to the branch, which is like, yeah. <laughs> so, but 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 there is progress, and a lot of that, uh, a lot of that is being pushed by the regulator. I'm I'm very happy with the way they've been. You know, it might not come from them pushing it downward, but they've always been encouraging the banks and the different FIs to really push. And they have enough of the circulars and the frameworks around. All the regulation is in place to allow you to stitch together open banking solutions, which is how we have been able to operate. Obviously, we do what we do within the regulatory framework of the Banco Central and Pilipinas. So it's all there. All the existing frameworks will allow some pieces. I mean, but that is correct. It's still at the very basic, right? But, but these are the baby steps we're taking. And that's not to say that the regulatory environment isn't very supportive. If you engage them and if it is in that direction, you might be surprised at how supportive they are. And I don't think they have, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Todd, but I don't think they've rejected anything in this area. In fact, if anything, they've always encouraged uh, banks, FIs, even fintechs to submit um, because the, they cannot also regulate in a vacuum, right? They will not just submit, the, they will not just do a top-down initiative. They give them something to, uh, to reject or approve. And more often than not, uh, when it's innovative, when it's supporting of open banking, financial inclusion, even if it's totally left field, as long as it covers the risks, the regulators have been able to approve it, even at the sandbox level. So I'm very supportive. I'm very grateful for the support that they've been giving us. Uh, but you're right, Todd, still at the very beginning. And we'll see more and more use cases that will start to, to really increase the adoption of, of these technologies and promote further open banking as well. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I'll, I'll just echo that. Yeah, BSP, the BSP has been, um, and I will say even more than other regulators in the region have been, they're actually extremely curious, extremely eager to learn what the use cases are and, and how they can be enablers um, mm -hmm. rather than simply top down, you can do this, you can't do that. Um, it's, it's been, it's, it's a good, uh, it's a good model. Guys, I am curious, what are some of the specifics around policies from the BSP, especially around open banking that have either made your life much easier? It sounds like many of them have, but any that have made your life a little less easy, I think that would be helpful. Uh, well, they, they continue to, I mean, all of the circulars around, uh, electronic money, around the virtual currency exchange, around agency banking. I mean, even the infrastructure that we have in the PESANET Instapay, um, actually even the governing body of, of uh, PESANET Instapay, the NRPS, the way that's been set up, where you have the, the banks and the wallets finally involved in the governance of these ACHs. Uh, I can't speak to anyone specifically because they are very much uh, tied up together. But suffice to say that a lot of them will rely on obviously falling back to the bank, being a universal bank, having a universal bank license, being able to do all the KYC, being able to properly handle all the risks. Um, it falls back into, into, into that responsibility where we have to take care of the consumer and the trust that's been given to us. But I can't, Amita, if you ask me to point to one specific, I can't. There are many circulars uh, that really, when, when properly stitched together, uh, and that's what we see whenever we present something to the BSP, be it a mobile app that does complete digital account opening, whether it be just third-party KYC reliance, which, which Todd was referring to, right? I'm a bank. I've already KYC Todd. I don't need to KYC him 
elsewhere. I don't, you know, Grab can take my word for it because I'm a bank, right? These different regulations have all allowed for many pieces of open banking. And so I, I, would, I would dare say that, that thought, even if we're at 1.0, we actually have the pieces and it's on us, the banks and fintechs, to really put it forward to the regulators and say, look, I want to do this. You know, surprisingly, I don't think I'll get in trouble, but they haven't said no to anything we've said in the past couple of years. <laughs> I mean, you know, if you put it forward properly packaged and, and, and let me just be clear, it's not like you submit it. It's a constant dialogue with the regulators. You know, we, 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 are, we are dialoguing with them until we find, uh, finally submit a paper form or a, a, an email form of approval. But, but otherwise, it's a continuous dialogue with the regulator. Can I do this? Can I do that? Can I do that? I mean, which is what's led to some of the more crazy innovations that, you know, like in blockchain, they, you know, we have a, a fully functioning blockchain rural bank platform. We have a stable coin running into it. Those are all approved by the regulator. Possible because you have that dialogue as you work through what you want to develop. Yeah, that's amazing. How does this work outside of the Philippines to other countries in Southeast Asia? Are you, I know Todd uh, Broncos is active in a few other markets. What are you seeing with regulators? Are, uh, are they taking a similar approach, stitching together a framework for APIs, or is it a little bit different? And perhaps is there a way to apply what's going on in the Philippines to the rest of Southeast Asia? With the usual caveats that every country is different, every regulator is different, blah, blah, blah. But I think generally what we're seeing is a bottom-up approach where the regulator is providing sort of gentle encouragement and not being too top-down. Um, so in, you know, in the, and the regulators that we've worked with closely are Thailand, Indonesia, and the Philippines. Um, and I think Vietnam is, is even earlier on sort of evaluating uh, open banking frameworks, but they're all in the same position, I think, where there is recognition, so this is a more general comment, I think there's recognition across financial institutions and the regulators that open banking is something to understand and pay attention to and will be a big wave of new startups, new FIs, new regulations required, new risks, new fraud models uh, that, that need to be addressed. Like this is gonna become a big part of a central bank's activity, regulatory activity, and it's gonna become an increasing part of banks and, and other financial service providers in the future. So there's a lot of eagerness to learn. So we, we've done a lot of workshops um, with, with BOT in Thailand, with BI in Indonesia, and with, and with BSP. Um, and they range from the, the kind of best practices, like here's the model, here are the models in the UK and EU, here's the sort of commercially led model in the US, given what we've observed and where FIs and fintechs want to have kind of more clear rules of the road. Uh, here's what we're hearing from the market and just sharing kind of a commercial and product point of view. Uh, and then my CTO, Ken, often will give a kind of a security-based uh, view on what a, a you know, proper IT security standards look like uh, to make sure that, that, that um, you know, that, that you're encouraging innovation while also in, you know, making sure that it's, you're, not you're not unduly exposed to, to bad behavior. Uh, but yeah, I, the, the, gen the general answer to that is I don't expect that there's going to be any top-down mandates anytime soon. I know, for example, in Thailand, they're looking at doing a pilot for bank statement aggregation. 
in Indonesia, they're still reviewing kind of what the policy framework is going to be and whether or not there's going to be new licenses, whether that's going to take the AISP, PISP framework, uh, licensing framework in Europe. So it's all, I mean, we're, we're uh, several months, if not years away from the first, you know, from any sort of umbrella regulation around open banking products. Uh, so, so that's why I, I, I echo what RV says. I think the, 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 the name of the game for banks and for fintechs is to be proactive, share with the regulator what you're doing, make it clear how you're protecting things like user consent, user privacy, compliance with local data restrictions, compliance with local data privacy management restrictions, uh, and, and just, you know, take it, if you take kind of a risk back point of view and you say, here's what we want to do. This is beneficial to customers this is beneficial to the, to the ecosystem. Generally here, are the here, here are the precautions we're taking here are specific things where we would love the regulators input because it's creating some nervousness on the part of our customers or, or the FIs we partner with. Um, that is the approach that's worked, worked best for us. Um, yeah, across the region. So what, what, so what RV's described for the Philippines is not, um, it's not unique for Southeast Asia. I think it represents more or less what the regulator mindset is across the region. Yeah, yeah that makes a lot of sense. I do have to ask about COVID and how this has impacted both of your businesses and open banking. Yeah, Arvi, why don't you go ahead and talk about, talk about the COVID impact? <laughs> no one was really prepared for, for, for COVID. Um, if, if ever you know we we might have been the the one of the few really further along the the curve right but even then uh it caught everyone off guard that said the bank uh, well we've been able to pivot to a completely work from home setup uh, we run the bank 90% from home you know good thing our infrastructure allowed us to do that what was difficult uh, for us was the the you know, be banking being basic, the basic service, and in the Philippines, in an emerging market where you still have a lot of people who are uh, unbanked or not even accessing their bank accounts digitally. The first wave saw a huge, tremendous amount of people wanting to get onboarded onto the digital platforms. And for those who had digital platforms ready and working, it was just a matter of volume and then onboarding them. It becomes a little difficult for other institutions, banks and otherwise, who were just about to launch their digital platforms and therefore had to launch it maybe in a, you know, not in a complete way. So they were struggling. And so they had to really service people in, in the branch. Um, for us, I guess we were fortunate to have a lot of our customers already digitally enabled. So that was, that was easier to, to handle. But not to say we were we were not cognizant of the others. Obviously, we were very aware of having to handhold our other customers. And that's where we spent a lot of time uh, during the immediate uh, lockdown and, and COVID period. Those who wanted to get onboarded, we had to onboard them quickly so they, they could use the, the digital platform. So it's been, it's been, operationally, it's been challenging for the bank, but I think we were prepared for it. And the question now is moving forward, how do we accelerate the adoption, and I think that's what's been removed. Uh, we, you know, fintechs, you know, banks like ourselves trying to do this many times, even at the regulatory level, we've, we've been doing a lot of discussion, thought leadership, you know, but it's all sharing, Todd, right? It's like not really a call to action. I think now the inertia or the resistance has been removed in people's mindsets. They're now not questioning, 
you know, why? If they're now questioning, okay, what do I do and how do I do it? And can I do it yesterday? And that's, that's the discussion that's happening after COVID, which I think is, is encouraging because you're going to see regulators, governments move into this. And that's where I think you're going to see really mass adoption because obviously the government is the biggest user of, of paper, of checks. And if you have them move on to digital payments, you know, that will really swing the needle. So it's that, that I guess, is a silver lining here post-COVID. Todd, what's your view? Yeah, um, so it's funny. Uh, it, we were—I uh, I won't name names—but we were when you know when when the the quarantine started in Manila in mid-March. Uh, we were you know we're of course working with with several folks on RV's team on on various API and kind of open banking initiatives. Uh, and it was you know we we're work from home starting on the fifteenth or whatever, but it was basically business as usual. Everything's moving along. There's another very large bank where we're, you know, we're working on something very pilot, very early days. And when this happened, it was everything stopped, all new projects stopped, while the bank was A, setting up VPNs for the first time for their staff, and B, procuring as many laptops as possible because their whole staff was working from desktops inside the bank, uh, inside the bank headquarters, right? So like while RV's team was just moving right along, there were there were banks down the road that were basically completely operationally stopped, um, and there were others. By the way, you know, anecdotally hearing from friends about you know there were there were several banks that basically did zero new account openings for the first several weeks of COVID. Zero, they stopped all new customer acquisition because they did not have any means to do digital onboarding. Period. Whereas I'm sure RV's team has, if you guys haven't disclosed it yet, I'm sure, I'm sure that uh, that acquisition curve looks something like this, right? So, um, whereas other banks, like literally, they had to stop. So, so that's one thing, right? Is that there's really been a bifurcation, and it's really just two categories. It's those that already had digital infrastructure to accommodate this sort of work from home, you know, digital environment, and those that had to procure laptops for the first time because everything was on premise, right? Uh, and you see the same thing on, on, on the, the user side, right? So users now all of a sudden much more keen to try out digital products for the first time. Um, and then corporates. So we found, you know, there's all sorts of new interesting use cases for corporates that were used to writing, writing th processing thousands of physical checks. And now the check writer machine is at the headquarters. They don't want to have staff at the headquarters. They're on a work from home model. They don't want to run around sending couriers all day long to sign checks. So all of a sudden they need a payable solution that's plugged right into their ERP, right? Um, so there's all, I mean, so overall it's been, it's been exciting, but not always in the way that, that you would expect. But I think fundamentally the change is, especially in the Philippines because retail and SME banking has been so branch centric. Finally, the, sec the industry generally, not, not union bank, but the industry generally is recognizing that, you know, digital channels are a thing and they're worth investing in, right? Uh, which is kind of funny to say in the year 2020, but that's that's the reality we observed. Yeah, it sounds like you know your cultures at Brancas and um, certainly in the fintech group at Union Bank, your cultures are quite aligned. So maybe it's a good time to quickly talk about the strategic partnership that you two just announced. Uh, I think two weeks ago. Real quick, uh, maybe you guys can go talk about what Brancas and Union Bank bring to the table in this partnership and what the impact is for the end user. 
Okay. Todd, do you want to go ahead? Go ahead. Sure. Todd. Sure. Just real. Uh, yeah. Briefly, I think uh, what what you know the way the way RV and I have always have have talked about it is you know RV's team is ha, he has some awesome developers and product managers, and their core focus is building new API products to serve fintechs and to serve you know the broader bank customer base, right? Um, and hopefully attract some new customers in the process, right? Um, where uh, I think, frankly speaking, where it is not a, the, a, a core competency of the bank is all of the last mile integrations for the less tech savvy customers that need an easier way to use RV's APIs, right? So you go to developer.unionbankph.com uh, and you're seeing a list of all sorts of very well documented easy to integrate, easy to use a sandbox, all sorts of use cases, but it's still plugging that into a legacy corporate's, you know, backend workflow, or if you're like an early stage Philippine startup and you have very few developers on hand, um, most of which are, most of whom are more comfortable working with kind of ready to use frameworks, they might, it may take them too long, or it may just be too complicated given their kind of capacity, capability level to, to use and integrate with an API directly. What they need is a little bit more handholding than you might expect uh, in a more, ed, uh, in, in another market, right? Uh, and so that's where Broncos comes in. So Broncos is, uh, I, we think of ourselves as a go-to-market partner or a last mile partner to Union Bank, making it easier and easier and easier for customers of the bank, corporate customers, SME customers, to have access to FinTech group products. I, I saw that early on when we're, our challenges were, you know, well, working with corporates. No? Some do have IT departments, um, but then again, you know, you look at their APIs and that's not exactly how it should be. You know, they think they, think they have APIs, but apparently that's not, the, that's not done properly. And so their, their concept of APIs is also... I don't know if the right word is dated, that or just completely wrong, right? But you have a set of customers that way. And you can't, you can't say, oh, okay, no, you know, you figure that out yourselves. You really have to handhold these guys. So either we've done this all our lives, even with the old, you know, SFTP, host-to-host -host connectivity. Sometimes, you know, we had to do all that plumbing ourselves just to get the customer connected. And if we have to do that now in an API world, we saw that, you know what, we'll do it. So some of them, number one, if they have AP, if they have technical uh, t uh, IT units, their APIs might not be properly done. Second, they have to be properly integrated, which they might not be capable of doing. But you know, Amrita and Todd, I'm sure you know this. Majority, apparently, of corporates or even SMEs don't have formal IT teams. They rely on outsource providers, and so if when you do that, and you're talking about you know creating a pipe that you're going to have API calls on every day and then it breaks down. Oh, let me call my developer who's on my monthly retainer. You know, that might be 60% of, of SMEs, MSMEs, and that's the norm. So when Todd says, you know, they're the last mile uh, for that, that's precisely where we need, you know, where we see Brancas fitting nicely because I cannot obviously service all of those needs. So they're an extension at that level. They're at least an extension of my onboarding team. At the other end of the spectrum, Todd's right. If I'm developing APIs for partners, for fintechs, he has a broader view based on what he's been doing around the region and working with the other fintechs as well, such that if I wanted to create that connectivity, he would actually add value to the way we develop those APIs rather than my team just doing it in a silo, right? 
so that's where that's the whole spectrum of, of this of this of this partnership and you know i don't want to belabor the point but really for those who haven't been on the ground here in the philippines and and, Tad, and other emerging markets when you say oh i have an api connect it's not that simple most of them will really ask you what's an api or where is it or how it's like you know it's the files are in the computer i mean for majority of them it's it's like that so you have to handhold them and that's okay but you have to make sure that you you have that mindset that i will handhold them through this process my worry now post covid i'm rita Todd, you know this everyone and his mother-in-law now wants an api even if they don't know what it means right they want an api for anything and everything and they think that's their first step in digitization and it's so there's a lot of hand-holding that will be required there as well as we go along. And that, that for me is the opportunity. That for me is the opportunity, right? So I would love to, and that's the model it, we want to push forward. We have to handhold these guys because once we do that and they're on board, fully onboarded digitally, then, but there's this painful process of onboarding them, which is where this partnership is definitely uh, focusing on, that part where we want to tech up Philippine enterprises and SMEs. That's great, guys. Congrats on the partnership. Now, I have a couple of final questions. Arvi, how do you see banks and fintech collaboration in the market right now? There are a lot of players who are ahead, um, the, you know, in terms of, I don't think I, I should name them here, but there, in each country, there are, there are some banks that are really, I guess, ahead of the pack. Um, and their, their lead is not just because they have a mobile banking app or, 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 or you know, they have an API platform, but they're really thinking and moving in a totally in a totally different direction versus the others who are, are lagging behind. The good thing is now the inertia has shifted. I think the, the lag, those who are lagging behind have no choice. And, and this is the part that, that in a way, I guess, excites me because I guess it goes back to that question about why. We spent a lot of our time, I think Manish, Todd, myself, the past two, three years, we kind of spent our time convincing people, right? That this is, this is, this is the way to go. I mean, that, that time is done, guys. I mean, now we have... The, the burden of now, you know, just taking the deluge of people who want to, to do this, which is a good problem to have. So I, I think the landscape will change uh, dramatically. Um, and that's the exciting part. You're going to see the laggards start to immediately emerge. And regulation that used to take three to six months, you'll see it now faster because of, you know, all of this situation. You, have, you now have regulation that can be approved in two to three weeks. And you're going to see a lot more adoption and a lot more scaling up from these guys. So it's very exciting to see. But I don't think uh, the verdict's out yet. Uh, either way, moving forward, it has to be collaborative. I think let me end with that. Everyone has to kind of work together, have an open mindset, and realize you should not do everything yourself. And Todd, how does open banking as a service fit into this? Part of the challenge here is these definitions are brand new. I mean, it reminds me a little bit of the the conversation around cloud like 10 years ago where it's like oh are you on cloud yeah i'm on cloud i don't know about cloud is cloud secure well that means a hundred different things and it's not one like going cloud does not mean one single thing so uh similar thing here i think where, where definitions have to be pulled apart a little bit uh I, open banking and banking is so open banking i think there's if you want to understand what open banking is, I mean, look to the UK and the EU because that's the, the kind of clear model and that's top down defined by the regulator. And it's basically, uh, I as a bank customer should not be limited to the channels that the bank gives me. I should be able to link my account, link my data, link my identity to, to, to third party, online identity to third party apps qualified. 
third-party apps, right? Um, banking as a service is, I see it as the approach, and Arvi can help me out with the definition here, but banking as a service is, ba I, I see it as uh, providing uh, banking services, not necessarily through a vertically integrated shop, right? So a bank today, especially a typical Philippines bank is like, you know, I, I can only can only access the bank through its channels, which is branch, ATM, online, phone, web, whatever. Uh, I can only access the products of the bank, right? And I can only, and I can only, um, you know, have access to certain products depending on what kind of the, the, the requirements that the bank gives me. Banking as a service is, I want to have X type of product. Now that may be delivered by, by some third party FinTech. It might be delivered by some, some, you know, one of my favorite apps. And then the actual bank license is provided by someone else. And it's being provided as a service white labeled to a third party, right? Um, so, so it's, it's, um, yeah. And I think standard chartered with their Nexus project is doing something like this. Um, it's not quite live, so I will, uh, I will withhold further commentary, but I, I you know, it, it, it certainly seems from the public information available, it certainly seems that they are, um, that the Nexus project is taking, taking a banking as a service approach. But I think that as Arvi said at the beginning of the talk, more and more, if you are a FinTech, you need access to banking services one way or another for your own systems because you're processing payments or because you're providing some sort of bank enablement or bank value added service on top um, so either way you need connectivity to the bank um, and 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 so banking as a service kind of makes that kind of focuses in on that uh product i suppose yeah. wasn't very eloquent, but you can see it's like hard to pull apart these definitions. Open banking, API banking, right? Banking as a yeah. service, platform banking, right? It's, there's a lot out there. There's a lot to digest. Um, thank you all. Uh, thank you, Todd and Arvi, for helping us digest some of it. This has been a fascinating discussion for me. I hope the audience has thought so. And I hope you'll join us again for the next one. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Green Room with Amrita Veer. Listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And make sure to hit subscribe to get the latest updates. You can also visit amritaveer.com to get more information, join our mailing list, and just reach out to us. You can also write to us at greenroomfintech at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Catch you later.